Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So said Shakespeare's maniacal king, Macbeth, upon the news that Lady Macbeth, his wife, had committed suicide. In that moment of clarity, he saw life for what it was, and he realized that life was without meaning and without purpose. The Greeks expressed such a perspective on life as well in their myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the mortal who had offended the gods and so was consigned to eternity of pushing a massive rock, a boulder, up to the top of a hill only to find when he got it there that it would roll back down and await his return to do it again day after day, year after year, for eternity. The 20th century existentialist French philosopher Albert Camus argued that the myth of Sisyphus is actually an accurate metaphor for all of life. Life is absurd, he said. It's Sisyphean. And if you try to find some overarching meaning to it, you will be driven, he argued, either to suicide or to tricking yourself with some kind of religious belief. The better way, he said, the authentic way to live is to give up any hope that things could be different than they are. To accept life the way that it actually is and not torture yourself by pretending that there must be some kind of overarching meaning or fundamental reason behind it. Now contrast that to the outlook of the writer Eleanor Porter, whose best-selling novel, Pollyanna, advocates a naive optimism about everything. The young orphan girl, Pollyanna, learns to live by a code called the glad game that causes her, in any situation, no matter how bad things are, to find reasons to be glad in it. So, for example... When at Christmas she receives crutches rather than that doll that she had longed to receive, she says, I'm glad because at least I don't have to use them. And when her aunt consigns her to a stuffy room in the attic where she has to live, she says, I'll be glad because at least I've got a great look on the city from the window. And when she's late to dinner one day and her aunt makes her eat in the kitchen milk, and bread, she says, well, I like milk and bread, so I'll be glad. A less noble but more sophisticated version of this approach to life is the philosophy known as hedonism, which regards pleasure and pain as the only important elements of life. Pain is to be avoided, and pleasure is to be maximized. And you maximize pleasure however you see fit. Drugs. Booze, sex, entertainment, wealth, winning, education, food, success, relationships, it doesn't matter. The point is to experience as much pleasure as you can for as long as you can. Now, Sisyphus 
and Pollyanna represent extreme opposite ways to think about life. But there is a myriad of perspectives between those extremes. And every one of us has a perspective on life. Each one of us here thinks about life in general and you think about your own particular life through lenses that have been crafted by your experience, your temperament, and your circumstances. The problem is that very often our outlooks on life are not very thoughtful and as a result they tend to be superficial and a superficial view of life sets you up for shallow living. Living that will be filled with disappointment and despair or a pretended happiness. Both of which cause you to miss out on deep, lasting joy. A more realistic view of life was sung by Joni Mitchell in her 1969 song that says, I've looked at life from both sides now. From win and lose, and still somehow it's life's illusions, I recall. I really don't know life at all. In a very real sense, that is a major point that is made in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is complicated, and it doesn't always make sense. Simple honesty demands that conclusion. Whether you're a committed Christian or whether you are an avowed atheist, we have to acknowledge life sometimes seems senseless. Consequently, simplistic answers to the profound questions and problems that are presented to us in life will not suffice to hear, to, to, to answer the realities that we face. We're not going to be satisfied with some little Sunday school answer for the realities that we face. At least you won't be satisfied with that if you're a thinking person. Because the scripture sets before us a better way of thinking about life. And in fact, this is one reason, reason that the book of Ecclesiastes is so compelling. A Herman Melville called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books because it takes life seriously and realistically and the author refuses to close his eyes either to good or to evil, either to pleasure or pain. He deals honestly with them as they exist in the real world. And that realism shatters both existentialism and hedonism while dealing honestly with both the lot of Sisyphus and the outlook of Pollyanna. Ecclesiastes is a book that looks at life as it really is. Real life. Life in what the Bible calls a fallen world. Today we begin a study of the book of Ecclesiastes. This study is going to occupy us for the next few months on our Sunday mornings. And we're going to work our way through it verse by verse. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 1 today. If you've not already done so, let me encourage you to find a copy of God's word. Open to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's found on page 553 if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided. I want to read the first two verses this morning. That will provide our text, which will get us into an overview of this whole book. And then we'll come back next week and look at the verses 3 through 11 to begin our verse-by-verse -verse study. But hear the Word of God from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What is being taught to us here is that life without God is meaningless. And in one sense, that's the point of the book of Ecclesiastes. Or maybe more accurately, I should say, that is the negative way of expressing the point of the book. Because as we're going to see, while real life in a fallen world is indeed empty and meaningless, when you do not know God, when you do know God and are rightly related to Him, life in this fallen world can be full of sincere and deep joy. And it can be undergirded by an unshakable hope in eternity. Well, in verse 1, we see introduced to us the preacher, the author of this book. Who is this preacher? Well, he seems to be identified in a very direct, straightforward way, does he not? But there are some questions about exactly who he is. The, the word that is translated preacher is the Hebrew word Koholith. Now, you don't need to know that word necessarily, except I'm going to be using it throughout our study to refer back to him. The, the word itself is built upon a root that means to gather, to assemble together. And some people have taken this word to be teacher, a teacher, or a spokesperson, or a professor, while others have taken it simply to be a, uh, an actual name, a formal name and proper name of the author. But with this root understanding of gathering or assembling together in its noun form as we have it here, the idea is that this is a leader of people who are being assembled together. And this is a word that was regularly used for the congregation of God's people. And so what seems to be suggested to us by this word, this name of the author, is that he is a leader, a teacher of God's people who are who's calling God's people together in order to instruct them very specifically out of his own experiences and reflections upon his own life. So, preacher is an appropriate designation for the author of this book. This also explains why the book is called... Ecclesiastes. I mean, that's the English transliteration of the Greek word for assembly, or ecclesia is that word. We get our ecclesiology and ecclesiastics from that. And so that English word was put as the title of this book based upon the name or the word designating the author. So Ecclesiastes stands as instructions given to God's people by a preacher whom he has appointed to lead them and shepherd them. The text says that this preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now if you know much about Old Testament history, immediately Solomon comes to mind, right? I mean, Solomon fits both of those qualifications. He was a son of David. He was the successor of David as king over Israel, king in Jerusalem and so older writers who have commented on Ecclesiastes almost universally take the author to be Solomon and much of what Ecclesiastes says to us fits the context of Solomon's life for example if you look down at verse 16 of chapter 1 he says I said in my heart I have acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And then just look at verse 9 of chapter 2. 
he goes on and he says, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. When we read about the life of Solomon as it's given to us in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings especially, you see this fits the facts of his life. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 9, God comes to Solomon upon the occasion of anointing him to be the next king after David, and he says, ask me whatever you want, I'll grant it to you. And so we read that Solomon in response says, give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people. And God responded by granting that request. And the text says that he made him wiser than anyone who was before him, anyone who would be after him, the wisest man in the world. As a wise man, Solomon is described as writing down words of wisdom, especially in Proverbs. So in 1 Kings 4.32, we read, Solomon spoke 3,000 Proverbs, as well as over 1,000 songs. Ecclesiastes 12, the last chapter of our text, verse 9 says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many Proverbs with great care. So it fits. So despite the fact that nowhere in Ecclesiastes is Solomon identified as the author by name, we can conclude that he probably was the author. Despite the great wisdom that God gave to Solomon, he fell into a life of indulgence that brought many sorrows. Read 1 Kings chapter 1 and you'll see a list of some of those sorrows. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you're reading, you're hearing from a man who had fallen into many sorrows through his various quests in trying to find meaning and purpose in life. Ecclesiastes then seems to have been written by Solomon as an old man. A man who laid in his life as looking back over his forays into seeking meaning and pleasure, work, wisdom and knowledge, as well as wealth. And what he discovered through such reflection is that life without God is meaningless. So in one sense, Ecclesiastes might be an expression of Solomon's repentance as he acknowledges his many failures, calling God's people together to learn from his experience. He does this so that we might avoid many of the mistakes that he made in his life. And in avoiding those mistakes, might learn to find joy and meaning in a world that has fallen. Solomon writes this book with full confidence that the words are not merely his words. He is aware that he is writing God's words. This is an important point for us as Christians. If you're tempted to be embarrassed or made to feel uncomfortable by the blatant honesty that we come across in Ecclesiastes. Look at chapter 12. Of Ecclesiastes verse 11. Here the author says. The words of the wise are like goads. They're like nails. Firmly fixed. And are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. One shepherd. Not the author himself. But by the one who is inspiring the author. So the words of Ecclesiastes are God's words to us. Now this raises an important question that we can't afford to skip over. 
Why does God think that His people need such words of wisdom, such raw expression of reality that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, quite simply, the answer is because we are not immune to thinking superficially about the world. Though we should know better, we can very easily be pushed along by the various philosophies and outlook on life that are current in the world today. Christians can think like unbelievers. If you need any confirmation of this, just listen to what some Christians are saying about the current presidential race. About who to vote for or who to vote against. Listen to the arguments and the way the arguments are being made. They sound no different than those who do not know God. And we need to have our minds adjusted by reality through the lens of God's word. And Ecclesiastes is specifically designed by God to do that. To help us be realistic and to find hope and joy in the ways of God and not to be afraid to look honestly at the things that are sorrowful, painful, wicked, harmful in this world. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need the message of Ecclesiastes. I need it. I'm convinced we all need it. We need it to keep us from unbelieving despair on the one hand and from what might be an even greater temptation, an unrealistic optimism on the other. I like what Martin Luther said about this book. He said that we should read this noble little book every day precisely because it rejects sentimental religiosity. So how does Solomon or Koalith, or the preacher, go about instructing the people of God. Well, he begins by making a blanket judgment on what life is like without God. That's verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times that word is used in verse 2. It occurs about 38 times throughout the book. What does the word mean? Well, in its basic literal understanding, it means breath or vapor. It's a metaphor that Solomon is using for life. The New International Version renders it meaningless. And the word means exactly that often in this book. But more holistically, it means fleeting. It means insignificant, ephemeral. It's like a breath. It's momentary. He's saying that life is not something that you can grasp. It's something that passes no matter what you do or how you approach it. Have you ever stopped to just look at the steam that rises up from a hot cup of coffee? You see it and you know that it's a signal that the coffee's hot. But what happens? It comes up, it dissipates, it's gone. Children, have you ever seen mom or dad take a match and strike a match, what happens? There's a, a puff of smoke that comes from the flame, but that smoke disappears. It's there for a second or two, and then it's gone. 
This is the same thing that James says in James chapter 4 verse 14 in the New Testament. Even more directly when he says you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's true. That's reality. We tend to measure our lives by each other. We tend to equate longevity with 80 years or 90 years or maybe 100 years on earth. But when we compare our lives to the whole sweep of human history, much less eternity, don't we have to say, we're just a moment. We're breath. Life is a vapor. But most of us don't think about life this way. So we don't let ourselves think about the end of our lives or the brevity of our lives. Ecclesiastes is so good for us because it forces us to consider these realities by challenging us to recognize that without God, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, in what ways is life vanity? In every way that we might attempt to live without proper regard to God in the world. That's true for work. Even productive work that does good for people. It's vanity. That's what verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1 says. And verses 18 through 26 of chapter 2. Wisdom, knowledge is vanity without God. That's what verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1 says in chapter 2, 12 through 17. Pleasure is vanity. That's chapter 2, 1 through 11. Especially look at verse 10. It says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept from my heart no pleasure. And then he goes on in verse 11. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. Wealth is empty. Riches are vanity apart from God. Chapter 5 teaches us this, verses 8 through 17. Here, just a portion of that section. Verse 10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The vanity of life without God is emphasized by the author of Ecclesiastes. And one of the ways that he does this repeatedly is by using a phrase that we're going to see as we work our way through this book time after time. It's the phrase, under the sun. It occurs approximately 28 times in these 12 chapters. And it reminds us that the author is thinking of life from a horizontal perspective. He's Letting the heavens be the boundary of his thoughts. So he's seeing life as it comes to him. As he experience it, experiences it without regard to God. Such life is vanity. From this vantage point, nothing has meaning. Work is futile. Verse 11 of chapter 2, he says... Then I considered all that my hands had done, which if you know, things Solomon did were significant. And the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
one reason such work is vanity is because a fool may benefit from the work of a good man. If you read down in verse 18 and 19 of the second chapter, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Under the sun, he sees how empty, vain, vain riches are because they can wind up hurting the person who has them. Chapter 5, verse 13, he says, There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Just being honest. He's seen it. He says, this is empty. It's passing. Both good people and evil people die. If you can't relate to anything else in the book of Ecclesiastes, for whatever reason, you've got to relate to this. You're going to die. Whether you've been a good person, tried to live right, according to certain good moral standards or not, you're going to die. He says in chapter 9, verse 3, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Things don't always go the way they should in life. And the author is honest about that. It's refreshing for him to see reality, even dark, difficult reality, and not close his eyes to it. There are inexplicable things that happen, and they happen to everyone. So he writes in verse 11 of chapter 9, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Life under the sun is vanity. Why? Why is this? Why do bad things happen to people who are trying their best? Why do wicked people ever prosper? Why do good people often suffer? Why do babies die? Why do husbands walk away from faithful wives? Why are men and women left widows and widowers? Why do children forsake the very things that their parents have worked diligently to instill in them? Why are there wars? Why are there divisions? These are the questions that this book faces and the answer that it gives to us is because this world is not the way it's supposed to be. God created this world Right and good. And sin came in and corrupted it and broke it. In one sense, Ecclesiastes is like a commentary on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. To see what God designed, what He created, and what sin has come in and corrupted it. It's the same perspective that the Apostle Paul gives to us in Romans chapter 8 when he explains why things are the way they are in creation, in this world which we live in. And he uses the very same word that we find throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. 
Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. That's the word. Vanity. Emptiness. Not willingly. But because of him who subjected it. God in his judgment against Adam and Eve's sin. But he subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. We who have the first roots of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption of sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Life under the sun is filled with futility because of sin. But sin will not have the last say. Because this vain world is not without hope. Hope of a coming redemption. Hope Of a coming restoration. When everything's going to be made right again. When that which God originally created. Will be seen in its restoration. And that hope is guaranteed. That restoration is assured. By what Jesus Christ has done. When he came to this world 2,000 years ago. God sent him into the world. To make all things new. Jesus Entered into this world. He came from above the sun. To rescue broken people under the sun. And he did so by taking up our cause. And standing in our place. He endured everything that this broken world has to offer. He subjected himself willingly to sin. The onslaught of sin. He bore the sin of sinners upon his shoulders. And then on the cross. He paid for our sin. Three days later was raised from the dead. Overcoming sin. Overcoming this world. And guaranteeing that the day is coming. Sin's not going to have the last say. Things are going to be made right. It's not always going to be vanity. Vanity. It is now under the sun, living without God. But God has acted. He's done something. He's going to rescue this world. He is going to restore order the way He created it originally to be. Jesus has ascended into heaven. There He awaits the day when He will return and liberate creation from its bondage to corruption that it might obtain The freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what gives life meaning. That's what enables us not to have to be Pollyanna. And pretend like things are better than they are. Or to be an existentialist who considers life to be nothing but a Sisyphean struggle. And says, well this is just pitiful and horrible and it's only going to be that way. No, the world is broken but it's going to be fixed. God has acted and is acting and will act. And he's going to make all things new in Jesus Christ. We have a savior who overcame this world. And through faith in him, we can overcome the world too. If you don't know this savior, then your life is 
under the sun. And that's all that you can have any hope of experiencing. And if you're honest, you're going to have to take the perspective of Ecclesiastes that looks at life from a variety of angles without God. Coolith, Coolith knew this. And he writes Ecclesiastes not as a skeptic, not as somebody who has just come to the end of his rope and given up. He writes Ecclesiastes as a believer. And that's why he sums up the whole lesson of this book in the very last words of it. Don't read Ecclesiastes and stop before you get to the end. Because at the end, he tells us the summation of everything. Listen to the last words of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. The end of the matter, here it is. All has been heard, here it is. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God. Fear God. Humble yourself before God. Worship God. Honor God. Revere God as God. Keep his commandments. Obey him. Do what he says. That's the way life is designed by God to work. Is in the pathway of his commandments. But what does God command? He says you shall have no other God before me. Which when we take it in the way the New Testament expresses it. Is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Fear God, keep His commandments. Honor God as God, trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Be reconciled to God. I want to just ask you this morning, this is the end of it. We're going to be working our way through it throughout the next several weeks as we study through the other chapters of this book. But are you fearing God? Do you revere God in your heart? Or is God just one more thing on your agenda? Like work tomorrow. Like going to the grocery store. Something else that you give attention to because it's a part of some pattern of your life. Do you honor God as God? Do you obey God? Are you keeping God's commandments? Do you even think about God's commandments? Does the idea that God calls you to obey Him land sideways on you? Like, who's He to tell me that I need to be doing something different than I'm doing? Does it sound repressive to you to live a life of obedience to God's commandments? Ecclesiastes says, no. The way of God's commandments is life. It's liberty. It's joy. You align yourself with the one who created this world, who's redeeming this world. And when you live under his authority by keeping his commandments, you find joy. You find hope. You find meaning. Are you living like that? Ecclesiastes shows us the futility of life without God by describing accurately the end of various ways of trying to make life work on our own terms. And it points us finally, and as we will see actually throughout every chapter, to the one way that we can enjoy life and live it to the fullest. It points us to the person and the provisions of God. Who He is, 
What He has done for us by providing redemption in His Son. How He has instructed us and commands us to live not so that we will be robbed of joy and miss out on pleasure, but so that we can begin to understand and appreciate the joy and the pleasure and the goodness that God has for us even in this broken world. Life without God is meaningless. Life in proper relationship to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, is abundant, full of joy. It's eternal. I want to encourage you to take the opportunity of this study of Ecclesiastes to spend time over the next several weeks reading through it. You can read it in about 30 minutes. Just sit down and read and ask God to show you what the preacher is determined to teach us about the reality of life so that we might learn together as a congregation how to live abundantly in a fallen world. Read it. Reread it. Ask questions about it. Talk to brothers and sisters about it. And come together on these Lord's Day mornings with desire to hear God speak to us to rearrange where necessary our thinking to understand the world as it really is so that we might, out of reverence for Him and obedience to His commands, live a life of joy, purpose, and meaning. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for speaking to us plainly. Thank You for, for not playing games with us. Thank You for exploding all of those castigations against you and against the way of Christ by skeptics who say, oh, Christians just live in their own make-believe world. I thank you that you have spoken to us with such realism that any honest person has to admit that you understand and you describe accurately the way this world really is. I thank you for giving us your son who overcame this world for the hope we have in Him. Help us as a people, as a church, to grow in the simple matter of fearing You and keeping Your commandments. And I pray for those who have never feared You, who don't revere You. Lord, show them what You showed Solomon, what You've shown to many of us here, and bring them joyfully, savingly, into a glad submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. For we pray in His name. Amen.